Also writes, remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Lord, uh, we give you praise and thanks for this day. Lord, we thank you for the worship that you have allowed us to participate in this morning, Lord, through our confession, Lord, through our singing, Lord, through liturgy. Lord, we give you praise for your word. We thank you, Lord, for calling us into worship this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for the work of Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, Father, we pray you would pour out your spirit among us, Lord, and open up our minds and our hearts to believe and to understand. And we pray these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Well, last week, uh, as we began Second Timothy, we made this connection between the three passages that we looked at in First Timothy into Second Timothy, and we noticed how Timothy—I mean, excuse me—how Paul begins to encourage Timothy, and then obviously us through this letter to leave a legacy of faith, to pass on a legacy that proclaims Christ to the next generation, that proclaims Christ to our children, to our grandchildren. And to pass on a legacy of faithfulness that encourages the next generation to seize the Lord Jesus for their own. Just as Christ has made him their own. To pass on a legacy that encourages them to come to Christ as Christ has called them to himself. And so, 1 and 2 Timothy and the letter to Titus are known primarily as the pastoral epistles. They're known primarily as being written to men who were serving as pastors. Specifically, Timothy and Titus. And so they have that particular goal in mind, right? They're directed toward ministers as they minister in the local church. But even with that being the case, that doesn't mean that obviously these words do not have application for the entire body of Christ. Because there are multiple ways in which I think this theme of a legacy of faith goes beyond the pastoral minister shepherding role and filters down into the ebb and flow of the regular life of the church. And so while the pastorals are meant to aid pastors and elders and shepherds specifically, I do believe that part of why the Spirit inspired these and why Paul penned them was for the purpose 
not only to aid pastors, but to aid pastors to aid the church to pass on a legacy of faith. And so as we make our way through these, these verses today, I think we really see two main ideas that kind of orbit this theme of a legacy of faith. And if you're a note taker, this is a fun day because I have some points. So the first note is this. There's only two. But the first point is this. This idea that circles a legacy of faith is that a legacy of faith, Paul tells us, is grounded in the unbound gospel. And this is what he tells us in the main chunk of our text today. But we also see him make this point explicitly in verses 8 and 9. And so in verse 8, he writes, once again, we are to remember the orthodox gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be a very familiar sounding word because he has hit on this point over and over and over again throughout the entirety of this ordinary season. Specifically in Colossians that we looked at back over the summer. And so obviously Paul and the Lord and the Spirit inspiring this word are very highly concerned that we rightly hold to the right message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul himself, we see works to pass on his own legacy of faith because 2 Timothy is held primarily as his final letter. We see that he is working to make sure that Timothy and that the churches that Timothy ministers to and that Titus ministers to and the churches that would read this letter, he is working to make sure that they also have a right and proper grasp of who Christ Jesus is and his work. And so he begins here in this very first verse by laying out really just three clauses that points to the orthodox gospel that he wants the church to grasp, that he wants Timothy to grasp, so that we might pass on a legacy of faith. And the first is simply this, is that the orthodox gospel proclaims that Christ is risen from the dead. We hit on this almost every single week, either in Sunday school or in Sunday morning, in some way whatsoever, even in our confession of faith and sin, we proclaim the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus, as we should. And again, this is a point that we hit on all the time. But this is also the key, the absolute and utter key to understanding Christ's victory over sin and Satan and hell and death itself. Paul told the Colossians in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then our hope is in vain and our faith is in vain. Because without the bodily resurrection of Christ, Christianity is pointless and it is pitiable. This is Paul's point to the Corinthians. And so he reminds Timothy here in this verse of this same truth that he proclaimed to the Corinthians, and he does it very quickly. And so what he does is, and he just helpfully writes this clause in the present tense in the Greek, just to stress to us the truth of the resurrection, that not only is it merely a past event, but that the resurrection of Christ is a present and it is a constant reality. He tells Timothy here, he says that by writing this in the present tense, he's saying that Christ Jesus is not only raised, but Christ Jesus is still raised and he still lives. And so... What Augustine does here, Augustine was preaching on this passage, and he actually stated that our proclamation of the bodily resurrection of Christ is what distinguishes the faithful from the heretic. And so he says that the orthodox gospel proclaims the bodily resurrection of Christ. But second, the second clause that he brings out here in verse 8 is that the orthodox gospel also proclaims that Christ Jesus is the seed of David. Now, our text in our bulletins, and if you have an ESV, and most honestly, the English text, are going to read offspring. And frankly, that's just a bad translation, right? All these are done by committee, and committees are horrible, right? Let's just call them what they are, right? But this was done by committee. Seed is a better translation. Because, and while this may seem like an arbitrary point for a non-Christian, and it may honestly seem like an arbitrary point 
For many Christians, it's not. Because for the Christian, this truth proclaims that Jesus is not only raised from the dead, but that Jesus is the promised seed from the line of David that God has promised to raise up in order to establish an everlasting and eternal kingdom. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises David this. He says, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, so when you die, I will raise up your seed after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, immediately contextually, this might mean Solomon, but biblically this means Christ. And so by remembering this truth, what Paul is doing here is he's telling the church that we can be confident that the kingdom to which we are called is not only an everlasting kingdom, but it is a living kingdom because our king has been raised and he is still raised. He says that his kingdom is eternal because it is alive and it is always and ever working in and through its subjects. And so the Orthodox gospel proclaims that Christ is the seed of David. And then this final clause here in verse 8 that Paul reminds Timothy and he reminds the church of here is that the Orthodox gospel is also the apostolic gospel. He writes here, he says that this truth of Christ is the truth as preached in my gospel. Now what Paul is doing here is he's not being selfish, right? He's not being full of himself. He's not being snobbish. What he is saying to Timothy, and he's saying to the rest of us, he's saying to the church in Ephesus, he's saying to us 2,000 years later that he's not preaching a gospel that is different or new from what he had been preaching throughout his entire ministry. But he's also proclaiming that he has constantly, consistently been preaching the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. This is the gospel that proclaims that Christ is bodily raised and that Christ is the promised seed of David. This is the gospel that has been proclaimed from the beginning, and it is the same one that continues to be proclaimed. The one that holds to the true gospel of Christ is the one that has been proclaimed by Christ and the apostles themselves. So, bringing this back to our context of a legacy of faith, what does this have to do with a legacy of faith? It's simply this. Remembering the orthodox gospel is the means by which we pass on a legacy, but it's also the means by which we are strengthened to endure and to suffer for this true orthodox gospel of Christ. It is a constant remembrance, but it's also a constant seizing of the eternal life to which we have been called in Christ. And Paul, what he does, if you notice this, if you just take this week, and it will take you a few days, but if you took this week and just read through all of Paul's letters, it would be fascinating. I didn't do this this week, and I should have, but it would be fascinating to go through and highlight or underline every time he uses the phrase remember or remembrance. Because Paul is constantly making an appeal for the church to remember things. And he does this almost specifically, even more so, in First and Second Timothy. And so what I think he is doing, the Holy Spirit is, is urging us, and he's doing this through Paul's pen. He's urging us to constantly remember that good confession that we made in our baptisms. He's constantly reminding us to remember to seize our eternal life to which we were called. To remember Christ himself even made a good confession in the time of Pontius Pilate. To remember the true gospel. To remember to guard the good deposit of the orthodox gospel. He's calling us to remember that Christ is risen 
and to remember that Christ is this kingly seed of David. He's saying, remember, remember that this is not a gospel that is invented and then constantly reinvented. It is the gospel that has been handed down from God by the apostles from the time beginning until now that has now been entrusted to each and every one of us to pass on as a legacy. He's telling us that the gospel is trustworthy, not because of us, but because it finds its grounding in the person and work of Christ himself. And so what he does then is he's laid out once again, just in three very short clauses, this orthodox gospel one more time. And so then he moves into verse nine and he's laid out this gospel and he then proclaims, he says, this, pre- this gospel that has been pre- that has as preached in my gospel is the reason why I am suffering and bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. So last week in 1 Timothy 1, specifically in verse 8, Paul told Timothy to not be ashamed of him because he was imprisoned for the gospel. And so here again in verse 9 of chapter 2, he reminds Timothy that it's for this same proclamation of the truth of Christ that he has been bound in chains. This is why he's in jail. But he reminds Timothy... And he reminds all believers to be encouraged because the message itself is not bound. So a legacy of faith is not only grounded in the unbound gospel or the orthodox gospel, but it's grounded in the unbound gospel. So Paul, again, he uses, and he does this a lot through here, he uses the present tense in the Greek throughout a big chunk of this text. And he does it with this phrase, is not bound. And so what he's doing is he's indicating that the gospel not only has not been bound, but the message of Christ never will be bound. And so Paul, understanding this point, he wants to remind Timothy and he's wanting to remind us of its importance, telling us that we might be bound, but the message of Jesus never will be. Chrysostom writes here, and he makes a a bold statement as he is wont to do, and he says, our hands might be tied, our hands might be bound in chains, but not our tongues. Nothing can bind the tongue except cowardice and unbelief, he said. The gospel is not bound. So it's finally October, and today is actually finally chilly a little bit, although I think it's supposed to be in the 80s again in a few days because we're in the south, and that's just how it happens. But because it's October, this means Reformation Day is coming up, which means our annual Feast of the Reformation is coming up. So your announcement is already made, right? The, uh, the Feast of the Reformation is coming up. But what's great about that is that it means we get to sing a particular song that is one of my favorites. And it was written by Martin Luther, and it is A Mighty Fortress. And there's a verse in that song that I think Luther used to sum up these two verses really well. And he, he sings this, or we sing this when we sing this song. He writes, The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And so what Paul is saying here is that we might be imprisoned, we might be chained, we might be tied up, we might be murdered, but the gospel will not. One commentator even wrote, he said, God buries his servants, but he never buries the gospel. And so a legacy of faith is passed on because it is grounded in this unbound and living gospel. But a legacy of faith is also one that has learned to endure and to suffer for this unbound gospel. It has learned to die to itself so that the gospel may continue to go forth. And Paul proclaims as much about himself in verse 10. 
when he writes this. He says, therefore, that annoying little word, right? Therefore, this gospel that I have proclaimed and this gospel for which I am suffering and bound in chains, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so even though he is writing this to Timothy, which Timothy is serving again as a pastor in Ephesus at the time, and even though this is technically a pastoral epistle, I want you to notice the universality of Paul's statement in this verse and how it is easily applied to every believer in Christ regardless of our particular called ministries. Because we are each called to endure everything for the sake of the elect of God. Meaning, not only those who are sitting next to us in the pews, but also, and possibly even more so, those who have yet to repent and to believe and to trust in Christ. Because Paul is saying here, he endures this so that they may also obtain the salvation that is found in Christ. Because as he already told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, The saying is trustworthy and is deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And so Paul uses two interesting phrases here. He says he's able to endure and he's able to endure because the gospel is not bound. He's able to endure because it is the true message of Christ. And so even though he is in prison and even though as we read through the book of Acts, he ends up being beaten and stoned and flogged and let out of windows so he's not killed, even though he's been persecuted, he continues to endure because his confidence is in the truth of the message of Christ. And it is, what, it is what has motivated him to endure all manner of suffering. And he does so for the sake of every brother and sister in Christ. To put it another way, Paul has an incentive to endure because the gospel is not bound. And so in a culture that we live in where we are always seeking an incentive, right? we're always seeking what we can get out of something. right? What do we get out of a job? What do we get out of an experience? What do we get out of a friendship or a relationship? What do we get out of a particular church that we go to? Well, if you don't have that for me, not if you're biblically sound and proclaiming the resurrection of Christ, what do I get out of it? Then we usually have nothing to do with it. And so what Paul is telling us here, he says that our incentive should be the message of Christ itself. Because he says the gospel is unbound. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, he told us last week in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, he says through the work of the Spirit, we are empowered by God to endure everything for the sake of this unbound gospel. But we are also empowered, he says, to endure everything for the sake of the elect. And so we have to understand that meaning because that phrase elect really starts to put some people off a little bit, right? I hear the word elect and I get all nervous and my brain gets all – I don't, right? I'm perfectly content with that word. But, but a lot of people get upset with that word. And so we have to understand what he means as it relates to the truth of the message of the gospel itself. Because God told Paul in Acts chapter 18 verse 10 when he was in the city of Corinth, he said, There are many in this city who are mine. God is telling us the same thing. There are many in every city that belong to him. And so Paul has learned to suffer and endure for the sake of those who belong to God, for those who have yet to hear God, who have yet to believe in Christ, and who have yet to repent and trust in Christ. And so he tells us here a legacy of faith endures not only because the gospel is unbound and living, but also because 
It endures for the sake of those who belong to God so that they may hear and believe and repent and trust in the Lord Jesus. And then we come to these three verses here, verses 11 through 13. And he closes out with a really interesting creed or a hymn. It depends on who you look at, right, as to how they classify this. I like creed, but, you know, that's just me. But it could be a creed, it could be a hymn. Both serve kind of the same purpose in some ways. Uh, they proclaim our faith. They help us remember our faith. They can be sang. They can be spoken. We've, we've done both with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and everything else. But you'll notice here, though, that this hymn, this creed in verses 11 through 13, sum up really well the beauty of the gospel as it relates to each and every Christian. He says this, This saying is trustworthy. So now here's the second trustworthy saying he's giving Timothy and giving us. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so what he does here in this creed, and, and everybody I read seemed to, seemed to assume that this was probably an early creed or an early psalm, but also that Paul probably made it up. Uh, I don't know. We just don't know, right? There's no reference to where this comes from. This is just an early Christian creed. But he makes it up with these with four if-then statements. So if an action, then this action. And so he describes here, though, what our actions ought to be and the results of those actions. And he just begins in verse 11. He says, if we have died with Christ, then we will also live with Christ. So here he goes again, reminding us to remember our confession, remember our baptism. We've looked at this over the last few weeks in First and Second Timothy. He, said, he reminded us that believers are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection by faith through our baptisms. By faith, we have died with Christ in our baptisms, he tells the Romans in chapter 6. He says this is the good confession that we made in the presence of many witnesses. So, remember that you have died with Christ. And help one another remember that they have died with Christ. But also Paul tells us that if we have died with him, then we shall also live with him. This is a future tense word. It's the first time he brings it in in this text. Meaning, again, we saw this in Colossians 3, meaning that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. He says, if you have died, then you are hidden in Christ. Christ who is alive because Christ is risen from the grave. And he tells us that we are co-rulers because Christ is the promised seed of David. And so he continues. He says, well, if you have died, then you will live. But also, if you endure, then you will also reign. So here he goes back to the present tense again, telling us, again, this is a constant motion. This should be an ongoing endurance. So really, we could, re- we could reword this as something like, if you are enduring with him, then you will reign with him. So this is a call to remember our priestly role in the kingdom of God. Chrysostom wrote here, he said that in our baptisms, each believer is ordained to our role as priests. But then he takes it further and he reminds us of our other roles that we are ordained to in Christ. He says, you're also ordained as prophets and you're ordained as kings. And he writes this, he says, "You you are a king by having dashed to earth all the deeds of wickedness and slain your sins in Christ. You are a priest in that you offer yourself to God, having sacrificed your body and being yourself slain also in Christ. 
but you are a prophet knowing what shall be and being inspired of God and sealed with his spirit. Paul is telling us if we endure with Christ, if we endure for the sake of his message of his gospel, then we will also reign with him because we are prophets and we are priests and we are kings in the Lord Jesus Christ. So by calling us to endurance, Paul is calling the church to persevere. But he also gives us a warning in this hymn. He says in verse 12, he says, If you deny him when you should be enduring with him, then he will deny us. One commentator helpfully defined this. I was having a conversation before worship this morning with our brother Jim about this aspect of denying Christ. And a commentator gave a definition that helped to, helps us understand this. And he said that denying Christ is the disowning of Christ. He writes, he says, it is a verbal or a behavioral disowning in order to avoid enduring with Christ. He writes, those who deny Christ in persecution or in suffering will receive denial instead of the right to reign. And so what Paul is doing here in this verse is he's simply echoing the same words of the Lord from Matthew 10 and from Luke 12. And so I I was reading this definition and I said, well, hang on a minute because Peter denied Christ. So how does this work? Because if Peter denied Christ, then... Was he, denied by, was he denied by Christ? Well, we know the case is no, right? Later in the Gospels, after Jesus is raised, he repents and he comes back to Christ and, and Christ says, feed my sheep, right? So I thought, well, maybe a helpful illustration is to compare Peter's denial to Judas's denial. And I think this is where this definition is helpful. Because while Peter denied Christ, Judas disowned him. And even though both responded to their denials through mourning, Peter wept, their intentions and motivations were vastly different. Because Peter denied, but he repented and returned. But Judas hanged himself in shame. Peter's denial was temporary, but Judas's was permanent. So Peter denied, but Judas disowned. But thankfully, Paul ends this hymn here and he says, but if we are faithless, then God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So here again, he uses this present tense. He says, faithless implies that there is a pattern of failure to live up to that good confession that we've made in our baptisms. Frankly, this is honestly why we need one another to help one another remember our good confessions, to help one another remember that we have believed in Christ. This helps to keep one another faithful. But he's also giving us an encouragement because we know that we're each going to struggle to remain faithful. But regardless of how faithless we are, God remains constantly faithful. So regardless of how disconnected we may feel or frustrated or disillusioned, God stays faithful. Our faithlessness only serves to display the faithfulness of God. And so just because we are faithful, God does not remove his faithfulness. And so a legacy of faith that is grounded in the gospel passes on this encouraging truth of endurance and the faithfulness of God to his elect. And so then with this grounding laid out one more time, he now comes to the second main idea that orbits this encouragement to leave a legacy of faith, and it's this. 
A legacy of faith rightly handles truth. It rightly handles truth. And this is just encompassed in those last two verses. Starts at the bottom of your bulletin there. It says, remind them of these things. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so he tells Timothy, he says, remind the church of these truths of verses 8 through 13. And so here again, we have him drawing upon the importance of memory, drawing upon the importance of remembrance. And the reason is is very simple. We're very forgetful people. (laughs) We're, we're, We're fickle. Our memories don't like to last. And we only want to focus on what we can immediately see or feel or touch or experience. And that's how we base our entire hope all the time. On Wednesday night, and I, and Greg, I think you brought this up. We were talking about Old Testament Israel, and this was part of their problem, especially the Exodus generation. They had a problem with memory. They were constantly faithless and complaining because they were constantly forgetting and only looking to their immediate experiences of what was happening. Right? So they were forgetting how God had constantly been faithful to them how he had worked out everything for their good, how he had delivered them from slavery, delivered them through dry ground on a riverbed. He had constantly, they were constantly forgetting how God had worked for them. And so in a time when we have devices that like to remember for us, I think this constant call to memory and remembrance is probably more valid today than it was in Paul and Timothy's time. And so Paul is calling us, he says, remember, remember again, remember what God has done. Remember the truth of the message of Christ. And so notice again that while this is directed specifically to Timothy, we can appropriately expand it to each and every believer, to each and every member of the church. Because I, I even have in my notes when I read through this a while back on my own, over in, the, over in the margins I just wrote, this is a good pastoral goal to remind the church of these truths. So this is a good goal for ministry. So you know, the elders, we ought to listen up when we read this verse. But at the same time, We also need to aid one another in memory and then command one another to instruct the church to not fight over words, to not quarrel, he says here in this. He says, because it only succeeds in ruining the hearers. It destroys the bride. It destroys the church. Again, preaching on this passage, Augustine wrote this. He said that we should be committed to substance over verbiage, which is true, but then knowing how much Augustine wrote is just... Kind of funny and ironic, but, but his stuff is very filled with substance, right? But he says, don't quarrel over words. It only divides the church. And so you come to this and you think, well, hang on, because that seems confusing. Because how are we to confront heresy if we're not going to fight over the words that they're using? Because words matter, right? We even know, that, especially in our own context today, that this verse right here could be taken so out of context and used and mistreated by those who do not hold to the true gospel of Christ. Oh, well, you're trying to call me to Christ, but you're quarreling over words. We just want to preach a message of this or that. And so how are we to quarrel? How are we to defend the faith? How are we to defend the orthodox gospel if we do not quarrel about words? So I think the Greek he writes this in is very helpful because this word that he uses for the word quarrel is a compound word that literally could mean word war, 
if you want to use a cheesy term, right? It's, it's like fighting over words. So in this case, what Paul is referring to is a war against the truth of the Orthodox gospel. It's a war on the word of God itself. Or as we've laid out all morning, a word war on the gospel of Christ. So he says here, quarreling over words accomplishes nothing. It doesn't do any good. It has no value because it doesn't build up the body of Christ. Rather, it ruins those who participate in it. It it is the opposite of rightly handling truth. One commentator wrote here, he said, A dispute about words seeks not the victory of the truth, but the victory of the speaker. That is what a word war is. And so for those of us who are concerned about the truth of the gospel, about passing on a legacy of faith grounded in Christ, he tells Timothy in verse 15 to rightly handle the word of truth in order to present ourselves, to present one another as an approved and confident worker of the true word before God. He says that the word of truth is the word that unites the church, not divides it. And so similarly, this word rightly handling is an interesting phrase in the Greek because it comes from from a term called, or the the Greek term is orthotomeo. So ortho ought to sound familiar because it's the same prefix as our word orthodox. And so in this case, ortho could mean something like right, which is what orthodox means, right teaching. But it could also mean straight or straight path. And the suffix tomeo means to cut or to divide. So literally, it could mean to make a straight cut. This is the same term in the Hebrew and in the Greek Septuagint that is used in in Proverbs 3, 6 to refer to how God makes our paths straight. And so really what we could do is we could think of the scriptures like, like if you are in a jungle and you have a machete, right? And you're just trying to find the path. So you're having to cut down the weeds and the overgrowth and the thorns and the thickets and everything just to find the straight path. And so for us to find the straight path to Christ, to guide one another along a straight path, Scripture must be used as that cutting tool as we make our way through the overgrowth and on to sanctification. And so Paul's command, command here to rightly handle the word of truth is he's telling us is that we are not permitted to be reckless with God's revelation. We must handle it with care and we must handle it with accuracy. He says, you're not permitted to say whatever comes to mind, but only to make known what God has already said. And he also tells us that we are not to be an innovator of new revelation, but explainers of the revelation that God has already given. Chrysostom writes here again, he says, with the sword of the spirit, so with the scriptures, cut off from your teaching and your preaching Cut off from any of your disputes or your arguments whatever is foreign to the word of God. So to put it into our context, to pass on a legacy of faith, we must rightly handle the word in which our faith is grounded and point to the one in whom this word is founded. Which leads us to the ultimate goal of not only ministry for the pastors, but the ultimate goal of a legacy of faith, which is presenting both ourselves and one another and the next generation as one who is approved by God through the work of the Lord Jesus. And so pass on a legacy of faith. Pass on one that has been approved by God because it is grounded in the unbound gospel and because it rightly handles the truth of Christ Jesus our Lord.
So may God bless the proclamation of his word to the edification of his church. Amen.